Open up your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 11. And Nehemiah chapter 12. It is a daunting task this morning of reading two chapters of names. So I'm looking for volunteers. John, sit down. (laughs) Just grabbing your Bible, good. This is... uh, Again, I want you to hear that many times as we read Old Testament uh, Scripture, page 406 if you're looking for it, as we read Old Testament pieces like this, we very quickly go, okay, this has absolutely no relevance whatsoever to my life. No relevance whatsoever. These are just names of people, lists of names, tribes of people, priests and Levites and warriors and people like this. What does this have to do with me in 2011? It has everything to do with you. Everything to do with us as a church. We believe that all of Scripture is breathed out from God. All of it. Not just the New Testament where we think it's applicable because we're New Testament people. All of Scripture is breathed out from God. Therefore, profitable for us. And so we take this text, these two chapters, seriously. Because this is God's word. So hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 11. From the iPod. Could not download audio. Of course it couldn't. Let me try this instead. That means I have to. That means Bob Chapel has to read it this morning. We'll try it again. <laughs> Are you ready? Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaiah the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And Maaseah the son of Barak, son of Colhosa, son of Hazaiah, son of Adaiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu the son of Meshullam, son of Joed, son of Padeah, son of Koleah, son of Maaseah, son of Ithiel, son of Jesheah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel the son of Zichri was their overseer. And Judah the son of Hasenua was second over the city. Of the priests, 
Judea the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sareah the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Mereoth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house. 822. And Adaiah the son of Jeroam, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzai, son of Zechariah, son of Pasher, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses. 242. And Amashsai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshillamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolam. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, son of Azrikam, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai. And Shabbathai and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Madaniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who is the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akab, Talmon, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Madaniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jechabziel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada, and Beth Pilat, and Hazershual, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Makona and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Ezekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, at Michmash, Ijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gataim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nibalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sareah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hadash, Shechaniah, Reum, Merimoth, Ido, Genethoi, Abijah, Ejimon, Maadiah, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Judea, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Judea. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Madaniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, 
and Jonathan the father of Jaduah. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sareah, Mereah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehohanan, of Molokai, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Mereah, Helkai, of Ido, Zechariah, of Ganathan, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Minyamin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shemua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyarib, Matani, of Judea, Uzai, of Salai, Kalai, of Amak, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Judea, Nathanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks, according to the commandment of David the man of God, watch by watch. Madaniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akab were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josedach, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Jeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Minyamin, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. 
and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. And that is the word of the Lord. Now, a lot of names. A lot of names that you would never name your children. But these are important names. And there, there's, a, there's a pattern that's going on here. But first, a question. If I would ask you the question, or the average Christian the question, of who, how, how does a person go into ministry? How does a pen, person, what, what's the pathway that a person enters into a ministry? Most people will say, well, the first thing that you got to do is probably go through some kind of Christian college, Christian education, go on to seminary, get, get a degree, some kind of master's of divinity, some kind of theological degree, and then get called by a church, and then you get uh, installed or ordained by the church, and then, only then, can you go into some kind of ministry, formal ministry. Well, I think that very mentality is the mentality that kills even our church and kills the church of Jesus Christ. It's this mentality that you have got to have a Ph.D., an MDiv, an LMNOP behind your name, and that qualifies you to do ministry. That very mentality kills the ministry of the church because in reality, the second that you have received the gift of salvation and you've been baptized into the family of God by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are equipped to do ministry. Each and every one of you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are called and equipped, therefore, to do ministry. There's not one person here, not one person here that has an excuse that you cannot do ministry. Not one. From the oldest person here to the youngest person here, all of us are called to do some kind of ministry. And every believer has a spiritual gift that he or she is to use in ministry. And God has entrusted you by geography, by vocation, and by the sheer point that you are a believer, has entrusted you with vital ministry. All of us are called and equipped to do ministry. But there's a mentality that I want to challenge this morning, even for us as a church. The mentality that I'm not gifted, that I'm not important, therefore 
I can't do much for God. I want to challenge that very ministry because the point I want to make, the main point is that all of God's people, all of God's people should be ministry-oriented. All of us. Our whole life is to be ministry-oriented. And Nehemiah eleven twelve is just another one of those portions from Scripture that you look and think, why did God put this, have this put into his inspired word? From verse 3 of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 26, it's just this lengthy register of Jewish names. It contains names of people who repopulated Jerusalem. It have people who lived out kind of in the suburbs or out in the farmland, kind of the Piatone area of, of Jerusalem. It, it included the, the priests and the Levites, the high priests. It, but then it goes into this dedication of the wall and the organization of the temple support. This stuff is important. One of the, um, the commentaries that I, that I read by a guy named Derek Kidner said this. It is not bureaucratic pedantry that has preserved these names. The point is once more that these people and their chronicler are conscious of their roots and of their structure as God's company. There's no rabble of refugees settling down anywhere. They have the dignity of order and of known relationships. Above all, of their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it's not just this this random, oh, these people, these people, they do this, they do this, and it's like a rabble, a group of people. There is a structure, a reason behind absolutely everything, and every person that is mentioned here. These people had willing hearts to do whatever God wanted them to do, and each functioned in their own unique capacity. Each of them. And as we examine this, this list, this section of, that lists the names of Jewish uh, people, four factors emerge that help us understand what ministry involves. And even as I went through it this morning, did my last second preparation, there were even names of people that we have sent on. I think of the Jacobsons that we have sent on to a particular place, Iowa. We've sent them on. And I think their names even come into play when, when I think about what does ministry involve. Well, the first thing, ministry involves a willingness to live where God wants you to live. One of the things that we do in our American culture is we move, how do we make decisions? We make decisions based off of Job, number one thing. We make decisions based off where a job is. We will go across the country just to follow a job, right? Another major reason. Why do we choose the places that we want to, where we want to live? Because it's on the planet. Thank you, Dave. Anybody else intelligent? Family, family. We go where family is, don't we? There, it's like, Man, where are my kids, my grandkids, my parents, my uncles, my aunts? There's a certain safety net that is there. So we, man, I will do whatever it takes to move next to mom. Some of you are going, no way. But there's this certain kind of thing. I will go where family is. The thing here is that 
these people are in a particular place for a particular reason. They were there to restore the city of Jerusalem to its original beauty and grandeur for the sake of worshiping God. They, Nehemiah left his place of where he was the big man in the city. And he came all the way back for a specific purpose. And it was what? It was not following work. It was not following family. It was doing the purpose of ministry. Where God wanted him to live. Where God wants him to be. And Nehemiah knew that if this city was going to be strong and prosperous. And if worship in the temple was going to be happening and thriving. The city had to be populated with citizens. It had to be populated with people. So there, there started, if you will, a lottery. One out of ten people who lived outside of the city were chosen to move back into where? The city. One out of ten. That'd be like one out of ten. We start taking one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Kyle, you're moving. You're leaving your wife behind. Well, actually, the whole family units move. So one out of ten. Okay, there's one. One, two, three, four. I'm messing this up because I shouldn't be count. I should be counting by family units. But one out of ten family mo- mo- family groups would be moved, would be transplanted to a place where God wanted them to live. Now, can you imagine that kind of a mentality that we actually move because God, we sense God is calling us not to a job, not necessarily to family, not to where money is, not where safety and security is because, you know, the neighborhood is changing. But we move because God is calling us to a certain place. That's a whole different mentality, isn't it? That we go where God is calling us. And if any of you are ever thinking of moving, one of the first things that any servant of God should be thinking of is where does God want me to live? Yes, maybe a job is a pathway, but ultimately, is that where God wants me to put down my roots for my family's sake? Because you know what? Do we ever... First consider, when we're looking at jobs, are there great Christian churches who preach God's word faithfully? Or is that a second thought? Or a third thought? Or does it ever even hit your radar? Is there a place where you can grow and serve If not, here's a challenge. If there's not, if God is calling you to move from this place to this place, and there's not a good Christian church, is God calling you to start a new church? Calling you to start a new church. And that's where, I I hope Brandon hears this, because I texted him this morning. They still have not found a church since they've moved back to Iowa. And it is killing them. They love Missio Day Church, and they are still looking for a church that preaches faithfully, that has great community, and they're not finding it. And I sent him a text and said, hmm, maybe is God calling you to start a church? I hope that just bothers him. I've met many Christians since we've been living in this area 
who say things like, you know, I've moved to the Lincoln Way area because of its great schools, right? That's why we move. Great schools. And I love this sense of community that we have, but it's becoming too big. It's becoming too busy. So what do people do? Move further south. They keep on moving, don't they? They haven't given a minute's thought to what sort of churches may be there. They haven't even given a thought to the kind of people that they are already to be ministering to right in their own neighborhood. And the thing is that if you even think beyond where you are living, that God, when he talks about the end times, when he, he will, all things are complete in him, what has he created? He has created a great city, hasn't he? It's not a place where we have our personal retreat, where we can escape out in the country, where everything is safe and secure. He has called us to a city where there are a great amount of people, where there are relationships, and there's an immense amount of contact all the time. The reason Christians think about escaping even from the city is that they don't have a ministry mindset. Tremendous amount of people are leaving the Chicagoland area and it keeps on moving further and further and further and further south. Why? To escape. Crime is going up, so I want to have a safer place. Do you know what the best solution to changing crime is? The gospel. Jesus. Maybe God is calling us to move back, to partner with Roseland Christian Ministries, to help out in those urban kind of ways, because ultimately at the end of our life and the end of time, when we start spending eternity with Jesus, we're going to be in a city, in relationships. Here's the next thing. Ministry involves serving in a sphere where God calls you to serve. Chapter 11 just lists all these names of heads of families, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, various officials appointed by the king of Persia, and the people who lived outside of the city. Each served in his or her respected areas or sphere of effective operation. Each one of them did. They each had a way of contributing Those who lived outside of the city had to farm the land to provide food for those who were in the city. Each had a different role, and each role was vital to the entire cause. In the body of Christ, this body, the Missio Dei family, God has gifted each and every one of us in different ways. And each of those different ways are absolutely vital to the body. We should learn how to coordinate and to complement each other without friction, without rivalry, without feeling like, like we're shorted or not very important. The eye is just as critical as the hand. If the whole body wanted to be an eye, it'd look a little awkward. If the whole body wanted to be a hand, it wouldn't be able to see where it was going. We need each and every part of the body. 
We need you to be functioning and serving the way that you are supposed to be functioning and serving, the way that God has gifted and equipped you. He is calling you to use your gifts to be that part of the body, to do your peace for the sake of the body, for the sake of kingdom expansion, for the sake of getting the gospel out to every tribe, every nation, every person that is out there. But it needs you to be a part of the body. Say, I am locking arms with these people and I am using my gifts, I'm using my talents for the sake of the body, for the sake of the kingdom. I am with these people. I'm with this family. But ministry also involves a certain willingness to serve without any kind of acclaim, without any kind of notoriety. Most of these names mean absolutely nothing to us, do they? You have no clue who they are. You get a random name in there where you go, oh, oh, I I recognize that name. Most of them, 99% of them, you have no clue their family history, what they did other than by list and tribe names. Some aren't even listed by name. They're just lumped together with all their kinsmen as a group. So they don't even get the pleasure of being named. Paul Vroom's name is nowhere in there. It's probably underneath another subset. It's another subset of a subset. But these people serve. Zadil, who's named in uh, 1114, he means nothing to us, but there is 128 of his kinsmen who go unnamed except to say that they were valiant warriors. 128 valiant warriors. 128 valiant warriors were no small part of the service of providing safety and security for the city. 128 valiant warriors. Churches need people like this. I serve in the children's ministry. I don't need a name, I don't need a title. I just need to serve in the children's ministry. You're one of the 128 people. Your name isn't even listed. This church would shut down in a week, in a day. We would shut down if we didn't have many who labor faithfully behind the scenes. And it's true with every church who serve faithfully and joyfully and willingly behind the scenes. They are like the vital organs that we have in our body. You don't see the kidneys. You don't see the lungs. You don't see the pancreas, whatever it does. You don't see, you know, the, all the other little things that are going on in here. You just maybe see the exterior. You might see Paul Vroom in the ministry. But what is going on interior, this stuff in here is absolutely vital to this body. The stuff that goes on behind the scenes is critical to the health of this body. But never do we hear in our conversation, man, my my kidneys are working great today. I love my kidneys. These are great kidneys. You know, you got great kidneys too? We We don't even notice that they're working unless they don't work, right? We don't talk about them. But they are critical to our health. You, 
whether you are up here or back there or doing something else, serving in a small group ministry, providing food for those who are needing it, or writing a tithe check, those are critical ways of supporting the whole body, isn't it? As long as you're doing it without the need for the pat on the back. Katie, thank you so much for tithing this week. That just You have no idea how important you are. Really? We do it because that's what we're created to do. It's about faithfulness and not fame. Motive matters. And here's the thing. God notices even when others do not. And who is our greatest audience? It's the audience of one. It's not the audience of Paul. It's not the audience of the children's ministry. It's not the audience of the, the, the worship ministry. It's not you as being the audience. Ultimately, my life is to be offered to God completely. And God, here I am. You're the only one that I'm seeking to please. And in my faithfulness to please you, I am serving your body with Christ as the head. And it's creating amazing amount of unity and joy another thing to notice that ministry involves people first and programs second these long lists just underscore the importance of people to god each of these strange hard to produce names represents a person whom god loved and knew and jesus Jesus said that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by their name and that his sheep follow him because they know his voice. The Christian faith is about personal relationships first with God and then with other. The two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. It's about relationships. Programs should always be the vehicle through which we minister to people. But if programs become the all-important thing, we miss it. We got to have this. We got to have this program. We got to have this. No, you know what we ultimately need? We need relationships. God has wired us for relationships. Apart from programs, if you have the proper ministry mindset, you will seek to relate two people one of the things that and i'll just be honest this is me and i'm going to press some buttons on some of you because you're going to be then you'll walk out ticked because this is going to be the only thing that you're going to hear some of us the first thing that we do is once we are done serving we disappear don't we sunday morning i'm done serving i am out of here there's either a a a family reunion, there's a baseball game, there's a, a park I gotta go to, a sporting thing I gotta see, this is gonna, and I'm just gonna disappear. While the rest of us are going, we need you. Where did they go? Have you seen so-and-so? We need people to relate to one another. And it's not just about Sunday. I, I'm talking about the week long, having a conversation with a, a brother, and I'll just use, use his name, Michael, this week he and I talked about how we are wired even as men to need to relate to one another. We need, men need men. We need men. And some of you are going, ooh, that's kind of freaking me out. 
I need good, solid male relationships in my life to hold me accountable, to encourage me on. But I don't need a program. And that's not saying that programs are bad, but I need men. And if it's through a program, through a ministry that I'm finding these relationships, praise be to God. But it also means that Sunday, after before church, I I hunt down Randy and I have a conversation and more than just, hey, how was school and administrating over in Tinley Park? It's, hey, how's your marriage? How's your relationships? How are you doing discipling your daughters? How are you doing as a man in your, your finances? How are you doing? Are you controlling your mind? Are you controlling your, your lust? Are you controlling this? Or, how can I come alongside you? And it's not just about men. It's also women to women. We need relationships. Ministry takes place through relationships. And if you are one that disappears, disappears on Sunday, because you have 200 things going on, and this is my weekend where i got to serve, and now that's crimping this, you are vital. Vital to this family. Vital. Critical to the health. Your relationships are part of our social network. And I'm not talking Twitter or Facebook. I'm talking about the body of Christ, where we are wired to each other. Hardwired through the work of Jesus Christ to each other. We need each other. More than any other relationships in the world. We need each other, because we're the body. You cut off an arm, and it's dead. Take out that kidney that you never talk about. After a while, you're going to notice. We need you. Moving on. What are some requirements for ministry? The main requirement, first and foremost, is that your heart is right before God. But there's four aspects to be right before God. Number one, you need a pure heart. You look in 12, verse 30. What did they do? They went through purification processes. The priests went through it. There is a certain pure heart to do ministry. And I'm not talking about a self-righteous kind of purity. I'm not talking about a pharisaical, Pharisee kind of purity. I'm talking about a true heart that knows the stuff and is constantly repenting and saying, God, here's my stuff. Take this, Lord. Help me put to death this in my life and bring me to newness in my life. The second that you think that you are pure and absolutely perfect is the second that I'm concerned about you as a leader. We need people who have pure motives, pure heart, a heart for God. Second, and we see this in 1227 and 31 through 43, a servant needs a worshipful heart. The dedication to the wall was a time not to praise Nehemiah, but to praise God. Nehemiah organized two choirs. And these two choirs started at the top of the city 
made their way down around the city, singing the whole time, playing on instruments, coming down through the bottom of the city, through two separate gates, came up through the streets, up towards the, up towards the temple, and were singing the whole way. Singing and praising and worshiping God. They sang songs and instruments from the man of God, David, a man after God's own heart. And here's the thing. God doesn't want your work if he doesn't have your worship. And I'm not talking that your work cannot be worship, but I'm talking about he wants ultimately a heart of worship. If you are doing work for the church and it is work, and you, you're not worshiping even in the difficult times or the mundane times, something is wrong with your heart. If, it, if you come in and just, oh, I go work with the kids today, I'm changing diapers and, the, and the, those little kids again. And, and, and changing little kids' diapers should also, strangely enough, be worship. It stinks, but it is worship. The opportunity to serve communion is not a burden. It is to be what? Worship. For you to greet one another, for you to lead a small group, for you to bring food, for you to tithe and off, it should be done out of a worshipful heart, not out of obligation where it's work and you do it begrudgingly. It is to be done with joy. Every time you write a tithe check or you do it online or you give cash, however you do it, it is to be done with joy. If it is done begrudgingly, it's like, uh, it's that time of the month, I go, uh, maybe it's my $20 time. There's a heart issue, a worship issue that is going on ultimately in your life. Which leads to 1243. A servant needs a joyful heart. Did you, did, you, did you pick up that piece in, in 40, I think it was 40, uh, 1244. Oh, no, that's not where it is. I thought I had it highlighted. Oh, I'm sorry, 43. And they offered great sacrifices. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God made them rejoice with great joy. God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I love it. It wasn't the songs of Jerusalem that was heard far away. It was the joy of Jerusalem. It might might have been caught up in the songs, but ultimately it was their joy that they had. Their joy. Okay, how many of you came in this morning just filled with joy? That's what I thought. There might be a handful of smattering of you, but most of you, as I saw coming in, is like, all right, here we go. But we are to do it with the joy that God, we're to rejoice with the joy that God gives us. How do we as New Testament people do that? Look look at Titus chapter 2, towards the end of chapter chapter 2, and Titus chapter 3. We do it because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are people who have 
We have fire insurance, but beyond that, we have life in Christ. We are new creations, and that should re-energize you, should give you just great joy, and therefore you come into the body rejoicing. I can't wait to see what God's going to do today, what God is going to teach me today, what relationships I'm going to build to make the, the body of Christ better and bigger and more beautiful and looking more like him. I can't wait to be praying with this person, to worship next to this person. I can't wait to do this. It is with great joy. And could you imagine if the church had great joy? What our witness would look like? (laughs) It turned things upside down. And lastly, a servant needs a giving heart. 44 through 47. A servant needs a giving heart. These people gave joyfully so that God's work could go forward. They saw the importance of worship at the temple. And they were willing to give the necessary offerings to support the many priests, Levites, gatekeepers, and singers who served there. And the people did it because they rejoiced over the Levites, or the priests and the Levites, who served. You see that right there in verse 44. The contributions, the, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather them into portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, according to the fields and the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered there. They did it with great joy. Have you ever been ever, honestly, have you ever been attracted to a tight-fisted, stingy person? I can't wait to go hang out with that tight-fisted, stingy person. They're so much fun to be around with. They're greedy. It's all about them. No, we're attracted. We are truly attracted to warm, generous, open, loving people who give of their time, and they give of their time, and they give of their time, they give of their talents, they give of their treasures. And you want to be around those people, don't you? Even in marriage, is this not true? When your husband or your wife is, is in that, that season of life where they're tight, they're just stingy, and you go, oh man, this was up with him. Oh, he is such a, oh, why is I just want to be with you. I just want to love you. I just want you to give to me the love that I'm supposed to have as a wife. Oh, I just, that's what we want. It's because, you know what? As believers, we understand the greatest gift that was given to us from the greatest giver. We're naturally wired to understand, man, Jesus Christ gave it all for me. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Therefore, I am to be generous and wired for generosity. My time, my talents, my treasure. If God is going to use you to minister to others, If God is going to use us to minister to others, we need generous hearts. Uh, I want to abolish selfishness this morning. It's not welcome here. 
Got it? Selfishness is not welcome here. Selflessness. It's not about me. That is welcome. Selfishness is not welcome. We have been, this year day, we have been given the greatest gift. Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And that gives us the greatest hope. And the greatest reason to be joyful people. To be generous people. I challenge to you, live into your true wiring that we find through Jesus Christ. Bodhi Bakken said, you do what you do because you are who you are. You do what you do because you are who you are. There's no selfishness in Christ. There's no ministry-less life for those who are in Christ. Let's pray.